0: Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply.
1: The Crisis Next Door. A weekly report on the biggest conflicts around the world with host Jason Brooks. Thanks for joining The Crisis Next Door. I'm your host, Jason Brooks. Today, Venezuela is in the spotlight i'm going to read some staggering statistics for you in case you're not aware of the crisis that's ongoing in venezuela it's estimated that 1.2 million venezuelans have fled the country over the past two years there is a lack of food a lack of medicine it's estimated that the average venezuelan has lost around 24 pounds in the past year just because they can't get enough food. And the Venezuelan Office of Caritas, a Catholic humanitarian organization, estimates that 300,000 Venezuelan children are at risk of dying from malnutrition. To help us understand why this crisis has erupted in Venezuela, we're joined by Reggie Thompson, a Latin American analyst for Stratfor. Reggie, thank you very much for joining us on The Crisis Next Door. Thank you. How did Venezuela get to this point where so many people are trying to escape the country and so many are starving?
0: So, simply put, it's the result of years of economic mismanagement uh, by the ruling United Socialist Party of Venezuela, because... To understand Venezuela, you have to understand the history of uh, its oil industry. Now, something like 95% of all Venezuelan export revenue um, in recent years has come from oil, and the oil sector really is the main driver of the economy. It's also the main source of uh, financial wealth for the government. And when Hugo Chavez came to power um, in 1999, what we ended up seeing was that his government particularly after the coup attempt against him in 2002, used oil wealth as a means of shoring up political support in the country. And it was also a means of enriching the country's uh, political elite. So what you, had, what you really saw was not only increased government spending without really much concern over what this would mean for the future, but also you saw a lot of corruption start to take place, whereby wealth was siphoned off uh, from state oil company Pedevesa. And so what we ended up seeing in recent years uh was in 2014 obviously there was the collapse in global oil prices but that wasn't really the underlying cause of the of the economic crisis in Venezuela it was more of an immediate trigger it exposed a lot of the financial uh mismanagement and a lot of the structural weaknesses in the country and so what we've been seeing now is accelerating inflation um vast shortages of consumer goods and of food uh, basic items like medicine obviously have their imports have been slashed simply because there's not enough money for the government to really conduct such imports or for the private sector. And we're not really seeing a slowdown of a lot of the incentives to corruption um, that facilitated this to happen in the first place. So it really is a a, an, a crisis uh, without uh, precedent in Ven- in uh, Latin America. And what we're seeing now, obviously, is the emigration crisis, um, as you said.
1: Hugo Chavez has been dead for several years. President Nicolas Maduro received a second six-year term as president, one that's not been recognized by many nations, including the U.S. out there. How was he able to win another term in office despite all of these massive problems in Venezuela?
0: So what we saw happen in Venezuela in recent uh, months was that the Venezuelan opposition was forbidden from running for office. Now, this is something that Nicolas Maduro, uh, the government of Hugo Chavez began doing this, sort of marginalizing the political opposition, particularly after the 2002 coup attempt when uh, Chavez perceived uh, all political opponents as as an immediate threat to his rule. Under Maduro, what we've been seeing is since um, 2015, when the opposition really started pressing for a referendum to get him out of power, is this kind of measures that opponents have called illegal, that now a lot of countries in the region call illegal, which is things like installing a constitutional assembly body that is effectively a ruling junta that does not obey the will of um, a lot of the population, nor does it really obey the, the will of the National Assembly, the legislature, which is controlled by the opposition. So you see these measures that the government takes such as barring political opponents for running, intimidating them, and simply doing the basic functions of government, things like government spending, uh, making yearly budgets, uh, making policy. It doesn't do this in coordination with the opposition. It does it through its own uh, decrees and through its own extra-legal bodies. And so really what Venezuela is, if if you really want to envision the Venezuelan crisis, you can think of it as two crises. There's the short-term political confrontation, which is the government against its political opponents who are also um, supported by the United States and by regional um, governments. And there is the long-term economic crisis, which is going to require a solution to the short-term political crisis to really be addressed.
1: How strong is the opposition? We've seen deadly protests in Venezuela over the past couple of years. Is the opposition strong enough to leverage some of that in its advantage? Is that something that we could expect perhaps a greater rise in protests, considering that the conditions were only worsening?
0: Well, the conditions for protests will continue to exist in Venezuela, and there's going to be a lot of violent unrest, particularly as as. Food becomes more scarce, um, and really the social crisis deepens. However, it's important to differentiate between the political opposition and just people who are di- displeased at the situation and who are effectively um, fighting for their lives in some cases, uh, where where food is scarce. So, it, it, in this, in the opposition is not a particularly strong um, political institution simply because it's been marginalized and divided and and really negotiated with by the government to the point that it's not coherent, that a lot of its members are not trusted uh, by the general population, by voters in general. And a lot of the unrest that you're going to be seeing uh, going forward in Venezuela, it's not going to be coordinated by the opposition, and it's not necessarily going to have their support. Um, a lot of this is going to be um, dem- rising demonstrations over basic things like no food, uh, no public utilities such as electricity and water, because we're seeing a lot of these public utilities that the government was formerly able to provide during periods of oil oil wealth, they're really going away uh, and not coming back in some cases. So water service, um, electric service, all that stuff has been curtailed in, in large parts of the country
1: we hear about uh, the word civil war being mentioned with Venezuela considering its its situation but given the lack of coordination uh, is that even possible right now You tend to need a coordinated group in order to uh provide the circumstances and environment to have a civil war with the, with a government
0: yeah definitely that's the thing right now um the situation in some places is violent but you've got to uh, differentiate between things like social unrest due to um, no food, social unrest due to a lack of public utilities, and things like social unrest coordinated by an opposition group or by, by political opponents of the government, and we're just not seeing that right now. What is more plausible would be um, an attempted uprising by sections of the armed forces that are dissatisfied with the way that the situation is going, which is why the government has prioritized monitoring and, and uh coordinating action against disloyal elements of the armed forces. So we've been seeing hundreds of arrests taking place in the last few years of uh, military officers that the government thinks are disloyal.
1: We did have that incident, I believe it was last year, when uh, one officer did use a helicopter to attack the Supreme Court, but otherwise really haven't seen any divisions in the military, at least publicly. Uh, What kind of support does Maduro have from the military? Is is at least the top brass on his side? Does he have that in his pocket?
0: Exactly. Those are the relationships that matter for Nicolás Maduro and really for the political elite in Venezuela as a whole, because when when you're looking at the political elites and how they work, you have to envision various cliques. So you've got the clique around Maduro, you've got the clique around Diosdado Cabello, who is effectively the other uh, most powerful man in the country, and you've got a a bunch of smaller military cliques. But right now they all seem to be working in unison because they want to avoid um, a common uh, fear which is that of falling out of power and being either extradited to the United States on criminal charges, which uh, often include things like drug trafficking and money laundering, or that of falling out of power and being at the mercy of a new government, um, which would almost certainly not be um, ideologically associated either with Chavismo, nor would it be necessarily sharing in the same spoils that the Chavistas shared in. So it would have more incentive to imprison them, or to at least um, attempt to extradite them to the United States.
1: You're listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm your host, Jason Brooks. We're talking about Venezuela with Latin American analyst Reggie Thompson with Stratfor. The crisis of uh, Venezuelans escaping out of the country, fleeing into other countries, it's simply mind-boggling, about 50,000 crossing daily into Colombia, hundreds of thousands already in Colombia, Panama, Ecuador, Chile, Peru, the list goes on. Uh, How is this straining Venezuela's relationships with those countries?
0: Well, so far it has not um, strained the political relationship uh, between Brazil and Venezuela or Colombia and Venezuela to the point that either of these countries would want to curtail the flow of migrants. Now, the Venezuelan government sees this, um, likely sees this privately as as, as a safety valve, as an escape valve. You have to remember that people who flee the country, they're not going to stay at home and potentially riot. Um, They're just going to pick up their family and leave in search of a better life. So that's kind of been... Um, for the Maduro government sort of a fortunate development it 's allowed them to um prevent some of the some of the more widespread unrest that they would otherwise have however we 're probably going to see the Colombian and Brazilian governments which are the the receivers of most of this migration flow they 're going to start trying to tighten their border at some point um legally it 's kind of hard for them to do they don 't have the the um the type of relationship for example that the Mexican and the u s uh, government have with regards to migration, but you're probably going to start trying, uh, seeing the Colombian and Brazilian governments start to try to limit the flow of people, um, most likely by, by trying to erect uh, um, legal barriers and, and, and um, barriers in practice to their, to their migration, such as stricter inspections, for example.
1: Are these refugee influxes causing any potential destabilization in the countries receiving the refugees?
0: So most of those destabilization uh, incidents have been regional, uh, particularly in northern Brazil, in the northern uh, department, of, in the northern state of Roraima, where you where you've been seeing a lot of localized competition, things like um, for public services because uh, public services are obviously strained, employment areas that suffered from underemployment and high unemployment. Um, that's only getting worse with the influx of more Venezuelans. So you're starting to see things like, you know, public unrest, uh, protests against the the newcomers, uh, violent attacks against the newcomers often. And so that's going to be more incentive for the governments to start to try to do something about the Venezuelan crisis, or at least to try to do something within their own borders to relocate the Venezuelans or to try to stem their flow.
1: The Lima Group, met. they've obviously been very much against uh, Mr. Maduro and his government. And there's been talk of recommending this case to the International Criminal Court. Uh, What could the ICC even do in regards to Venezuela? Uh, There's already heavy sanctions on Venezuela. The economy is obviously in a total freefall right now. What would sanctions do to actually help out Venezuelans?
0: Yeah, so that that's really the the concern for international bodies regarding Venezuela. The government there is very much concerned about losing power and what that would mean for the individual fortunes of the leaders um, in power in Venezuela right now. And so, guys like Maduro, guys like Diosdado Cabello, um, guys like the head of the armed forces, uh, General Vladimir Padrino Lopez, they look at these um, at these efforts to try to not only constrain Venezuela regionally but to try to make the case that they should be tried at the ICC. And this kind of stuff only galvanizes them to try to stay in power more. Now, regional bodies can't just force the Venezuelan government out through heavier sanctions. The government long ago stopped caring about really regional opinion, and even the opinion of its own citizens. Um, They they don't have the same incentive to respond to electoral pressure, like, say, the Colombian government or the Brazilian government or the U.S. government. Um, And so what you're seeing right now is that this type of external pressure, it's at first going to galvanize them to stick closer together. But as the crisis deepens, you're going to start seeing greater fissures developing at the lower levels of the armed forces. And that really is the main force capable of, of really pushing the Maduro government out of power. So obviously that's where um, the Maduro government is going to focus its greatest efforts.
1: Speaking of military forces, uh, we haven't seen President Donald Trump comment a whole lot on Venezuela, at least not recently, but he did say at one time that there are many options for the U.S. and Venezuela, including a possible military option if necessary. Uh, what did those comments do to the relationship between the U.S. and Venezuela, and is that something that has set Venezuela even further away from reaching some sort of compromise with other countries on its current government?
0: So that that comment probably made the Venezuelan government slightly more distrustful of U.S. intentions. But it's important to recall that U.S.-Venezuela relations were already taking a nosedive before that. Um, they weren't good under in, in during Obama's second term, and they definitely were not good at the start of uh, Trump's term. And so what we've been seeing, essentially, is it, it's, it's incredibly unlikely that the U.S. is going to take, you know, military action against Venezuela, that it's just not a high enough policy, foreign policy priority. What is more likely is that the U.S. would try to do heavier sanctions against Venezuela, particularly sanctions targeting its um, its oil and gas sectors. And so that really is the great concern for the Venezuelan government, um, though really at this point, um, greater sanctions would only cement uh, what, what is already U.S. policy towards Venezuela because we've seen increasing financial pressure against the Venezuelan government that is already kind of choking um, its ability to conduct financial transactions abroad and it's slowly shutting it out of the U.S. market.
1: Venezuela did just release a Utah man, Josh Holt, a Mormon missionary who was jailed for a couple of years. As a suspected terrorist of Venezuela, but he's been released and he and his Venezuelan wife and her children have arrived back in the U.S. Is there any way that this could perhaps be an entree into negotiations, perhaps a a good faith gesture?
0: Yeah, I mean, the the case of Joshua Holt, um, it's pretty clear that the Maduro government was likely intending to use it as a good faith gesture. However, the the odds of a negotiation actually beginning between the United States and Venezuela on a government transition, for example, a transition away from Maduro, um, it's relatively slim, simply because even if such a negotiation begins, you're going to have a very complex series of discussions um, between the Venezuelan and the U.S. government, because you've got guys in Venezuela that have indictments for drug trafficking and other crimes in the United States. They're probably going to want to see those indictments not um, acted upon, and I don't know that the U.S. can actually promise that um, to to these guys. And you've got dozens of Venezuelan officials that are going to be trying to get involved in these negotiations. They all come with different interests, so it might not even be in Washington's Best interest to even begin such a negotiation um, the the Trump administration might be reluctant to try to engage him in such talks, particularly when the Venezuelan government is probably betting on on, on the notion that Trump may not be president within a couple of years. they might be trying to outlast. What they consider to be um, an aggressive U.S. administration and hoping that the next one is going to be more less interested um, in, in the Venezuelan crisis.
1: Venezuela obviously been under collapse for several years now. Are we close to the bottom? Is this reaching a tipping point or could we be facing several more years of uncertainty before something finally happens to change directions in Venezuela?
0: We're going to see several more years of of, uh, economic collapse in the country because right now there's really um, nothing to slow down, um, for example, hyperinflation in the country. And there's really, we're, we're really seeing the collapse of oil production in Venezuela simply because PDVSA is broke um, and there's not really a whole lot of effort from within the Maduro administration to roll back on the incentives for corruption because you have to remember that corruption also keeps the government together. If they can keep on um, exploiting PDVSA, for example, exploiting some of the wealth that PDVSA generates for their own benefits, then they have less incentive to do things like turn against Maduro politically. And so, right now, we're going to keep seeing this slide um, into into more economic deterioration. It's going to last um, quite a few, quite a while, like the better part of of a decade, actually. Um, Then we might see a slow economic recovery, but it's still an open question as to how far uh, oil production will fall by then. And so, we're just as as this happens, we're going to see uh, rising emigration to Colombia, to Venezuela, to uh, Brazil, to other countries in the region. We're going to. See, probably the U.S. start trying to take more of an interest, but its options are going to be limited. Um, it's got sanctions, it's got additional pressure it can exercise through the Lima Group, but nothing really decisive to be able to end the crisis.
1: Certainly doesn't sound like there's a whole lot of hope on the horizon for your average Venezuelan.
0: No, that's that. It's it's quite unfortunate that most Venezuelans don't see an end. Um, to this crisis, so that's why you're starting to see a lot of um, emigration, even from people who were formerly formerly middle class, upper middle class. They're starting to see emigration anywhere else in the region, and and you know even to Europe, to the United States. Um, they're starting to see that as as their main option uh, for the future.
1: And an uncertain future it is for Venezuela. A big thank you to Strat for Latin America analyst Reggie Thompson. You've been listening to the Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. I'll see you next time. The Crisis Next Door with host Jason Brooks is produced weekly. If you have any thoughts for Jason, email him at TCNDpodcast at kcbsradio.com. Again, that's TCNDpodcast at kcbsradio.com.